I just want to 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 yell at people and just say things are multivariate. There is no single cause, and then just slap them in the face with a paper that says that forever. That would be wonderful. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we are here again with another uh, slapdash and mash load of fun here for you, McIntyre. Rip-roaring good time, as it were. Rip-roaring good time, yes. Mm-hmm. Sam breathed. He, he, he <laughs> had something to say, but that I happened. actually I did not breathe. I, I turned the page of McIntyre. Oh, um, all, I think you were hearing him, the breath of, uh, what would you say, modernity? Exhaling? Of, yeah, yeah, just yeah. wafting over us like a... Uh, Something. Anyway. the last breath of modernity. The dying, dying gasp. We we stand at its deathbed, watching it slowly perish, and we can do nothing except for make a podcast about how it's going to happen. I feel like we're somewhat kind of low key dancing, but we're trying to at least be polite about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like <laughs> we're not really going to mourn the death of modernity, but it's on its deathbed. We're in the room. We're going to at least pretend to have liked it. Like I wasn't gonna say that this is uh auto de fe and we're dancing around the uh slowly burning corpse of it, but you know, maybe it is. You know, I'm going up to its wife post modernity and saying, Oh no, he was great. He was a wonderful person. Well that's actually true, because <laughs> post modernity man just no one even likes to talk to her. It's, it's <laughs> absolutely the worst. Well but, I mean, hey, a... their child post post modernity, he turned out all right. Yeah, it's well, I mean, it's a little bit unclear. He's kind of in a weird teen phase. He's on like TikTok a lot. There's a lot of memes, and I don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy. Like yeah, the, the he, you know, he's still figuring himself out. I, I'll give him give him some time. The irony levels are just off the charts, and I just don't know how long it's going to last or how you know serious it is. And that's the anyway. I and that is the strange out. thing because post 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 modernity is very anti irony. So the fact that he's being ironic is that is that is troubling. That's very worrisome. It's ironic. Hey. And Sam was never heard from again. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Sam is just silent until he <laughs> finds a point where he can do a zinger, and then he's like, oh, got him! Gonna get the outro! And then he just retreats back and then waits for the next moment to strike. Yeah, which is really only because I, I just kind of skimmed this chapter and don't have much to say about it. This but, uh, chapter was, well, we'll get to that. Um, but okay. first, uh, um, b- b- before we get to that, you need to make sure that you have a, a good drink in your hand. So I'd like to uh, thank our sponsor. Uh, just kidding. We don't have sponsors. Uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now? Some Twinings Earl Grey tea. It's cheap and tasty. You pretentious bastard. Steven, how about you? I am drinking what is called English tea number one, exclusive quality tea. Uh, 20 tea bags, net weight of 1.4 ounces. Um, not all of those are in my teacup, though. Only one like that, though. <laughs> <laughs> As, uh, you know, you, you uh, uh, twirling, uh, fancy, dainty um, continental types are, are enjoying your tea, but I'm having some hearty American Joe. Uh, from Trader Joe's, Dark Roast, Joe's Roast Coffee. Uh, it's delicious. Um, and uh, my mouth only t- uh, feels a little bit like uh, acid's been through it. So that's great. It's, you know, it's good stuff. It's a full uh, quarter step above Fulgers. So anyway. Uh, Americans. Americans, you know. So yeah. It's funny that you mentioned sponsors, it's sponsorship uh, and drinks. Uh, did I ever tell you about the time that uh, one of my friends tried to blackmail Coke and Pepsi into giving him uh, a free cozy for all the advertising <laughs> he, he did for him? No. So he, he would always walk around. He was obsessed with Mountain Dew and always would walk around with a can of Mountain Dew. And so he thought it would be the funniest thing to write either. Who who controls it? Pepsi or Coke? Pepsi. Oh, Pepsi. Yeah, Pepsi. So he, he wrote Pepsi and said, hey, I always have a Mountain Dew co- uh, can in hand. I think it's not unreasonable for you to send me a free cozy because I already do so much advertising for you. I may We may as well just make this official. And they sent him back a very formal, like, actual response saying, you know, we get lots of uh, opportunities for uh, 
for you know uh, sponsorship or whatever we're gonna have to turn it down this time and he he had tried to to kind of turn the screws a little bit by saying well if you know if you don't let me I, i'll have to go to your competitors and so when he got the note to them he just turned around and asked coke if they would uh, if they would do it and again trying to kind of like turn the screws and be like i'll go to your competitors and they told him to buzz off very politely but <laughs> to buzz off. <laughs> the lonely individual attempts to find community in the great corporation i don't know I was just going to say it was a good effort of uh, of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship. Well, entrepreneurship is the product of modern society, which is entirely different from classical or heroic societies. Which is which is what McIntyre looks at in After Virtue, Chapter Ten, which is a fantastic chapter. So let's dive right in, shall we? McIntyre notes that in classical societies, quote, the chief means of moral education is the telling of stories. End quote. And thus, he intends to analyze classical or heroic societies as portrayed in their stories, in their epics. And he comes at it from a couple of different angles. Um, he looks at the Greek primarily, but there's also some Icelandic or Germanic ones that he mentions that have parallels and, and similarities. And in the stories of heroic societies, he says that, quote, morality and social structure are in fact one and the same. Morality as something distinct does not yet exist. Evaluative questions are questions of social fact, end quote. So this all ties back to what he was talking about previously, about overcoming the fact-value gap, the Hume's Law, I think it is, or whatever, where you cannot make moral judgments based on statements of fact. And he's saying, well, as a matter of fact, morality as a separate concept did not exist, and statements of social fact corresponded directly to how you morally judged someone. And that's because every individual had a given role and status within a very well-defined society. And as long as you knew what the roles of others were and what they owed you, honor uh, in this case, you could navigate it and make judgments about the virtue of various people simply depending on the facts of how they acted, what they did, because you knew what they were supposed to do. You knew their telos. Um, and McIntyre outlines the central virtues of courage, friendship, and fidelity and the central functions of the household, fate and death, and the inextricability of these concepts from each other and just how important they are and how they interweave within these heroic stories. For example, he talks about courage, uh, which, quote, courage is important not simply as a quality of individuals, but as the quality necessary to sustain a household and a community, end quote. And this was particularly true because death was always so close to hand. Uh, in the framework of these societies, uh, quote, the man who does what he ought moves steadily towards his fate and his death, end quote, which is the fate of all men. And understanding this fact is a crucial part of courage, as McIntyre describes it. In other words, death is always kind of hanging out there, and you only have so much time to do what you're supposed to do while you live. And you know that fact, and your life is constantly bounded by that fact. And the society gives you essentially what you're supposed to do. And as long as you do that, you're doing pretty well. And what McIntyre says through this is that when all these connections are grasped, the thing that you come away with is that, quote, life has a determinate form, the form of a certain kind of story. It is not just that poems and sagas narrate what happens to men and women, but that in their narrative form poems and sagas and capture a form which was already present in the lives which they relate, end quote. In other words, art imitating life, art simply displaying the stories and sagas that already exists within a society that is ordered in such a way as heroic ones. Although there is a crucial distinction that he makes about epic poetry, which is that the poet who's writing these stories does view society from the outside when he's writing about them, while the characters obviously don't have that detachment because they're characters. Uh, a funny little thing about being an author versus a character that somehow persists to this day. Um, in interestingly, except uh, in Deadpool, obviously. That's the one exception. That just breaks McIntyre. He just doesn't know what to do with it. So McIntyre compares the rules which govern action in heroic societies, such as the one described in the Iliad, to the rules that govern a player of chess. And it's basically, the only right moves that you can make are the ones that lead you to win the game. And thus, it's a factual question as to whether or not a person is a good chess player. You're a good chess player if you win. Within the vocabulary of chess, it makes no sense to say that that was the one and only move to achieve checkmate, but was it the right move to make? In other words, within chess, the right actions are obvious because the object of the game of chess is to win. And 
in the case of chess and in the case of the people in the Iliad, it is only within the framework of rules and precepts that they are aim- that they are able to frame purposes at all. The one problem that McIntyre notes with this is that people do play chess for a variety of reasons, but while in the Iliad, all questions of choice arrive within the framework. The framework itself, therefore, cannot be chosen. So morality, moral living in a society in the real full sense before it got siloed into academia, is, quote, always to some degree tied to the socially local, end quote. So to wrap all this up, thus the the self of the heroic age lacks the fundamental ability of, of the modern self to step backwards and consider any framework from the outside. I think of a one of my favorite writers, Leszek Kolakowski, who would say that one of the great powers of Western modernity is this power to do anthropology, both of ourselves and of other cultures, to step outside of things and view it as one does from the outside, either naturally because you are outside it or to step outside oneself and do that. Um, But this power, as McIntyre is demonstrating, is for better or for worse. And to wrap this up and get on to some discussion about this, there's sort of two angles I think that we can start from to talk about. And I, uh, the first is that I think there's something very powerful about the idea of receiving morality and uh, and a location to live at, and, and that those things can be, even if they aren't a lot of the time, uh, deeply intertwined. And it's very, very different from the type of freedom and discussions of morality that is typically had, but especially had among, you know, sort of freedomites or Ayn Randians or libertarians, etc. And I think it's very similar to good religion in that it's passed on to you. It's not something that you make up, or if you do make it up, you're a cult leader and you should stop. So Alistair McIntyre says that there's no way that there is no way to have virtue except to receive it through tradition. Uh, quote, if this is so, the contrast between the freedom of choice of values of which modernity prides itself and the absence of choice in heroic societies looks very different. For the freedom or for freedom of choice of values from the standpoint of a tradition ultimately rooted in heroic societies appear more like the freedom of ghosts than of men, end quote. So that's the first thing we can talk about. The, the second thing is uh, McIntyre jabbing at Nietzsche and Nietzscheans in particular, um, and maybe even at Kierkegaard. And this is that he says that there's no such thing as an undeceived Nietzschean, because part of the Nietzschean ubermensch is this idea of going back to the days of the Iliad when there were these great aristocratic warriors who jumped around, uh, who didn't have any hang-ups about slave morality and Christianity and be a servant leader, blah, ew, gross. No, we're, we're just going to self-assert and rule the world and kill people and do what we want and, you know, survival of the strongest will, will the power. But McIntyre says, no, that's absolutely ahistorical. And, and if it's ahistorical, then the Nietzscheans have nothing to go back to. That was never a state that existed, nor is it a state that could exist practically. And, you know, this from this, he says, there are no undeceived Nietzscheans, but I think there's a comparison to be drawn here when we're talking about things like Kierkegaardian leaps of faith, um, talking about the Knights of Faith, which is a bit of a aristocratic self-assertion, we might think, um, or even things like Walker Percy's sovereign wayfarer idea. And do we see McIntyre in conflict with this um, when he talks about the uh, uh, no undeceived Nietzscheans and the necessity to receive morality um, or virtue? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have one question. Mm-hmm. Is Walker Percy the most important thinker of the 20th century? Because the amount of time that we talk about him, I would seem to assume yes, but I have not heard about him or really heard anyone talk about him outside of this, this group of people. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts, no, Sam. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer is he should be the most important thinker. Uh, uh, no, uh, um I'm 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 on a Walker Percy kick right now because I have a book of his essays that I'm reading um, in addition to one of his novels that I'm also reading. Um, so which one? Love in the Ruins. I'm just I just started it. Gotcha. Yep. Anyway, sorry for that. Um, no, no. Yep. He is an excellent thinker, and in my opinion, underrated. Though um, I have I have been surprised by how many people have heard of him. I was talking with one of my uh, one of my coworkers, and I brought up that I was reading a, a Walker Percy book, and he's like, "Oh, Walker Percy, I love him." He he had read the movie Goer. He thought it was great. I feel like Walker Percy is someone who is really interesting, but hard to take seriously just because he asks such difficult questions. So, like, you're kind of all in, or you're just like, eh, never mind. That's fair. Anyway, we're off topic. Yeah, on the subject um, of your first question about receiving morality and kind of fitting into your um, 
your role in the world, the first place I went was Plato and his definition of justice in the Republic. I actually have the Republic sitting on my desk right now. So you pretentious bastard. I know I am. I just kind of keep it sitting here. But Plato's argument is basically he makes this point about justice of everyone fitting into their own place. And then he builds out this entire world, this entire society based off of that one premise. And there's a large theory that this was meant to be a work of almost satire. That basically Plato was showing how absolutely ridiculous it is to have a society built like this and how impossible it would be. So if Plato is making that argument, I guess, what does Aristotle do with that? And how have we inherited that idea? Well, this isn't directly pertaining to Aristotle in this chapter per se. This is going to heroic societies or to the society mm-hmm. described in the Iliad and what's, you know, something of note. Fair. So it's going pre-Plato. Yeah. Well, but also that Plato specifically excludes Homeric poetry and, and such from his pre-built designed society. That is a good point. He does. It's, this isn't exactly correct, um, but the heroic society arguably was not or is fundamentally distinct from a project like the Republic because it's not built. Mm-hmm. It, it, it evolves. It is created. Organically might be too, too strong of a word because you know people who have swords and kill people who don't have swords tend to be the leaders and is that organic building of society i don't know but from a darwinian perspective is very organic sure 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 sure. but that's but the point is no matter how we classify it that's very different from the project of let's build a society from the ground Mm -hmm. up and and design and choose the classes for everyone you you do bring up an interesting point though is that if you know tradition has to start somewhere the way tradition should be approached is you receive it but at some point someone wasn't receiving it at which point Mm -hmm. Do you infinitely regress or spontaneous uh, concept generation? I have no idea, but yeah. I wonder if there is a repair that can be made. Um, certainly the Homeric society was um, both before Plato and also Plato kind of intentionally excluded it. But McIntyre did take pains to note that the uh, the tellers or the poets, the, those who were telling these epics were already extending themselves beyond the morality of their own world. Um, mm-hmm. They, uh, I think one of the, one of the examples brought up, I think it was an Icelandic epic where uh, a husband and wife were surrounded by like 15 people who had been hired to kill them. And they, they killed eight of them before they were brought down. And the epic, even though within the framework of the epic, the husband and wife lost, they were killed, they were defeated and therefore they lost the epic uh, teller, in essence, uh, shows that they actually won. They gained honor out of that. So there is already an extension beyond the framework of society that is kind of a recreation of morality that Nietzscheans might be able to lock onto. I, I think part of the the tension in, in, in McIntyre is whether or not we buy the, the idea that the people who write the epics and the stories of the heroic society are imitating the stories that are contained within a, you know, a cogent moral and social system, or if it's a just complete fantasy. Because McIntyre's contention is going to be that these stories exist all over the place when people believe and act in accordance with their roles, and those are the standards to which people hold themselves to, and then this is a description of how that can play out in, in these epics. Um, I see. Yes, but whether or not we buy that the epic emerges from a society or is just a separate entity is a open question. I would say. I mean, I, I guess I find it somewhat difficult to believe that there isn't some sort of grounding. I mean, these these epics were considered of all time importance for this society, and so one, it, it would be difficult to think that they would come out of a vacuum. Or I mean, not to say that like they have to be nonfiction or whatever. Of course, like. You know, ninety percent of the uh, of the stuff is absolutely falsified. I mean, you know, there there are no Greek gods, oddly enough. But I mean, they they were portrayers of their culture, for better or for worse. And how accurate that was, that's certainly up for grabs. But I I would find it difficult to believe that Homer didn't attempt to embody a lot of Greek culture any more than Ulysses tried to embody. 20th century, um, or James Joyce in writing Ulysses tried to embody 20th century um, uh, Ireland or Dublin. All that to say in regarding, for example, the husband and wife who died, and then it's it's unclear to them at the moment of their death, have I done well? Part of that is natural to this type of social organization, because as McIntyre notes, and as we can probably all um, intuit for the most part, death is kind of a, 
Event Horizon, beyond which it's kind of hard to figure out what's on the other side or, you know, have, have hindsight from that point, um, at least as far as we know, <laughs> definitively. So the, the epic form, I think, helps to extract even more meaning and more understanding of lives from the other side of that by telling stories about those who have died. But there's still a significant amount that can be extracted and found while living while living within a society. Like like you can know what you're supposed to do up to death and then whoever tells the story after you can let your descendants know if you if you did that well too. Yeah. Um one other thing, this is kind of circling back to your conversation about characters is that the characters in these epics, um, it's on page 128, but they never know that they're actually in the epic. Like, they're just going about their lives, they're fighting their battles, but they, they don't, they're not trying to make an absolute statement about morality in their actions. That, that statement comes out of their actions. And this might answer Stephen's question earlier about where these things come from, is m- maybe the point of epic poetry and the point that Homer even is implicitly trying to make is that your life's meaning comes out of just living out your life and living out your purpose. Like if you, if you, if you set out to create some grand moral system or some grand effect on the world or any kind of big impact, you're not actually going to accomplish it. You need to live your life from where you are. Would that be kind of a decent synthesis of points? I think that's, that's great. I mean, I think maybe one way to think about it is you, you can't live life in a meta way. You you can't be mm-hmm. abstracted from life and say you did a good job living in the place where you were. I mean, Walker Percy talks about how abstraction is the one of the you know there are two and there, there are two enemies. There's abstraction and then you know complete imminence. But abstraction is one of the biggest dangers to humanity to live outside of yourself and outside of place. Well, if you're outside of yourself, you don't know where you are. Yeah, yeah. And there's a big argument that I've seen about that's that's one of the main reasons why modern society is so depressing for people is because you're constantly watching judging yourself and constantly watching yourself be judged from the outside so you're never actually able to be yourself you're just a bunch of different images that you want to become that's dark it is it's not fun good diagnosis (laughs) if only we had our ontological lapsometer here um then we could really do some Walker Percy reference everybody okay um but speaking of 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 Walker of Walker Percy let's let's tackle the second question that i had um mm-hmm. if you don't mind so yeah. percy says that there are no um undeceived nietzscheans because nietzsche depended on these iliad characters being self-assertive in their morality but if they're not being self-assertive and they're in fact receiving it what do we where do we go from it from people who seem to follow from nietzsche or at least in the same vein in that they require a lot of self-movement let's say you know leaps of faith knights of faith or even just being you know, Sartre or Camus and, you know, being the sovereign individual, how, how do we deal with all this? Well, first, I'm fairly certain it was McIntyre who said that, not, not one person. But, uh... <laughs> I was going to say, oh, I was going to mention, you're just, like I said earlier, you're now superimposing the name of Walker Percy onto the the words of McIntyre. So yeah, 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 yeah. we're going to have to have uh, an exorcist come in. And I think the, the spirit of Walker Percy is possessed for Evan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> possessed this, uh, this podcast for sure. Mm, that's yeah. what's happened. Uh, at least we finally exercised David Foster Wallace. Walker Percy. No, I was go. intentionally just, not bringing him up. Brought him back. <laughs> He's back. <laughs> I will say I did read the first 10 pages of infinite jest and I might read more. So we'll see. It, it's, it's solid. It, he, he just hooks, he sinks his hooks right into you and doesn't answer like my question. Uh, I don't want to want to, I want to talk about David Foster Wallace. Now. Um, you're a child. Um, <laughs> the the Nietzschean requirement of the Homeric heroes uh, asserting themselves instead of being integrated into a particular role in society, I think McTyre's cre- critique is spot on. I I still stand somewhat by my claim in that Nietzscheans could perhaps find find a recourse in McIntyre's admission that the epic narr- or the epic teller is taking a step outside of the morality. Uh, told by these epics, but even then, I think it would be a little bit spotty because you can see that the uh, the, the poet is still somewhat nodding their head in approval. Um, so I I think you are correct in that the Nietzscheans are there are no undeceived Nietzscheans. Um, that I think that much is 
quite clear in that if they're they're looking to Odysseus or Achilles as their examples of being uh, heroes that create their own morality, no, they are just they are fitting themselves into a particular story um, as told by their society. Okay, so there are no undeceived Nietzscheans. Are there no undeceived Kierkegaardians? I mean, McIntyre's already leveled a pretty devastating critique on Kierkegaard. Um, and I think... But you, it, but you guys, uh, when we talked about this, as I recall, I was on the offense against Kierkegaard. You were on the defense for Kierkegaard in terms of the things are absurd, we still need the leap. But McIntyre seems to be against that. Given the premise, so let's agree with Kierkegaard for a moment that everything is absurd. Um, no, and, and from Kierkegaard's view, Kierkegaard was confronting a very similar problem, problem to Nietzsche in that, well, it appears that all standards of morality have completely fallen. Um, so therefore we have to choose one or the other. And it, it appears that Kierkegaard went with uh, the ethical and Nietzsche went with the aesthetic. And McIntyre is the one pointing out both Nietzsche and Kierkegaard were just missing a very vital piece. Um, so I think you could say that Kierkegaard perhaps, well, I, Kierkegaard was wrong in that, like, yes, he was missing a vital piece. Uh, he was missing teleology. Ironically enough, uh, he was the one that was all about the teleological suspension of the ethical, but that's besides the point. I, I, I still, I'm inclined to agree that if uh, everything is absurd, yes, you do have to, to make a radical choice. That said, I, I, I think that's wrong in that if he had been given the idea of virtue ethics, perhaps he wouldn't have thought everything was absurd. Sam? Um, I mean, my th- what I'm thinking about this is I'm trying to figure out a way that you could have an undeceived Nietzschean. And the best argument I can come up with so far, it's probably wrong, but the best argument I can come up with is that the Homeric heroes are merely meant to add like some kind of benefit to Nietzsche. Couldn't he still be right and it just be really, really bad for his followers? Like can you explain that. Okay. Like instead like um, you know, there's no objectivity. You can't um you know, you can't find meaning in modernity and you can't find meaning in Homeric heroes. You're just meaningless. Period. Like the Homeric heroes are almost a way out to satisfy your yearning for meaning, but they're not actually entirely necessary. That's the best argument I could come up with against your point. Beyond that, I think I agree that you basically have to have Homeric heroes in order to exist. I mean, I I think the general McIntyrean thought on Nietzsche is diagnosis is correct. Um, pro, or, uh, whatever the word for treatment. Prognosis, I think. Pro, yeah, mm-hmm. prognosis is wrong. Um, and the, the, the Homeric heroes were his prognosis. So yeah, he gets so. the... He gets the diagnosis right, but the prognosis, um, and it, in that sense, he's undeceived. He's yes, um, he's deceived. But if I may, b- because this is this is one thing that was sort of troubling me, because um, I've never been a huge fan of Kierkegaard for various reasons, but I do like Walker Percy, and he is fairly Kierkegaardian in, in that his sort of final evolved character is a what's I think the term is the sovereign wayfarer, um, you know, sort of navigating the absurdity of modern life. And I think the way out to do a synthesis of McIntyre and Walker Percy and the, you know, sort of more existential thinkers is kind of already been handed to us, but I think I just didn't notice it. And it's that Walker Percy is responding not to the human condition per se, but to modernity. And when you're responding to a modernity that has thoroughly rejected tradition as a legitimate way of conveying knowledge and has thoroughly rejected the idea of humans as integrated and as, you know, necessarily beings that require a telos and virtue. It requires being a sovereign wayfarer just to get away from all that badness before you can even receive anything. And that's where you get, you know, his characters that are turn out super religious and devout but in a broken way and the brokenness being caused by society as it exists now and here i think percy will find an ally in david foster wallace in that he god damn it <laughs> hey, hey you've gotten to bring up percy a lot this time i get to bring up uh, wallace and for the record i love percy and you should love wallace so we should all be getting along here okay um <laughs> but i think he can find a, an ally in david foster wallace in that wallace is very much about choosing something to commit yourself to that is outside of yourself throughout infinite jest he he kind of hammers this point home a lot of his uh 
uh, nonfiction essays, This Is Water, he, he reiterates this idea over and over of choosing something outside of yourself to commit yourself to in a very radical choice sort of way, in a very Kierkegaardian leap of faith sort of way, or a Walker Percy, Sovereign Wayfarer sort of, sort of way of, yes, this is all absurd, but if you want to survive the absurdity, you need to commit to something. Um, and you need to find something that's outside of yourself that's beautiful and that is worth committing yourself to. For the freedom of choice of values is more like the freedom of ghosts than of men. Yeah, I think McIntyre would be actually somewhat opposed to these thinkers um, in that he doesn't seem to... Uh, I, I think he doesn't accept the premise that the the universe is absurd or that morality is absurd like this. Um, I think he he sees teleology, uh, he sees virtue ethics as kind of a, an escape out. And again, this is before... I'm not sure if he was religious at all before he converted to Catholicism, uh, but afterwards you did come before he he converted to Catholicism. So it could be that he was atheist or at the very least non-religious uh, when he was writing this, but I think he sees virtue ethics as a way out of the absurd. I like all these people. So my goal is to just find a way, you know, find where they contradict, but also see where they can synthesize. But when Walker Percy talks about, and when David Foster Wallace in the few essays that I've read of his talks about the absurdity of life, my contention to try and make a synthesis is that they aren't talking about life qua life now and forever. They're talking about life in Western society, modernity and post-modernity. And that's what's absurd. So when you are complaining about not being able to understand yourself, that's because you're trying to understand yourself via science, for example. And it's not that, and, you know, and McIntyre would say, of course, you're never going to understand yourself through science of course it's going to seem absurd because you don't understand telo so it's not that mcintyre sees telos as a way out it's just that we only got to absurdity because we left telos in the first place i i think you have a solid point there um certainly yeah percy's main main uh quarrel is with modernity and the um kind of reductionism of humanity and McIntyre's simply going at it from a different angle. So yes, I, I would be inclined to agree for sure. Are you just saying that to uh, appease me because I'm not. <laughs> no, no, honestly, I, I do think that I would disagree. I, I think Wallace, well, Wallace isn't, well, he was sort of, he was weirdly semi-religious. Um, Spiritual, but not religious. Uh, I mean, he, <laughs> he flunked out of uh, uh, RCC uh, catechesis um, uh, twice, I think. Uh, like, he would try, and he just couldn't quite go into it. I know he was attending church towards, late, uh, towards some, I think, in the early 2000s or whatever, which was shocked most of his fans. Um, uh, in, in any case, uh, I, I can't quite find any world he has with modernity his main thing was uh he fought against like irony and a lot of the the issues that were brought up by post symptoms maybe yeah um certainly and so i i just i simply don't haven't seen anything i don't think you're wrong but i can't find anything to confirm sam any final words not really except i think that that might be where i come down on on david or with david foster wallace is combating the symptoms of modernity without throwing it out. I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, and I'll say it again, that, yeah, modernity sucks, but not having society sucks more. I think that's a paraphrase of what I said before. But it's the same general point that, you know, I think we can buy all these arguments, and I'm interested to see if there's a way to integrate this in a way that does not require us to go off into the mountains and become monks. I was just going to suggest just go become Amish. Um, <laughs> so he kind of spiked my argument there. Well, yeah. I, one thing that I did think was worth noting, uh, the fact that death is a very consistent theme throughout all of these uh, epics that McIntyre is tracing through. And I think there is something that is something that is very positive towards uh, the claim that this is at least a start of a good ethical system. I think it was Socrates, I forget, I think it was Socrates, it was some... Some philosopher uh, or philosophy is it it is training to die well. Um, It is training and preparing yourself to die. And so any epic, any system of narrative or any system of thinking that prepares you to die well, I think it is certainly in its favor um, because that is part of kind of the human condition, as it were. So I, th- I think that definitely speaks to his favor. And also um, one thing to know, uh, Stanley Howard was, he's a theologian over in Duke. I think he uh, worked in Notre Dame for a while and he and McIntyre uh, apparently traded back and forth a lot of stuff, but uh, he was very much about the telling of stories um, that 
the society that has forgotten how to tell a good story, how to pass that on, has completely lost its ability to tell or to uh, pass a virtue on, has lost the ability to have moral conversations. I think he received that from McIntyre, but there's at least another thinker that is very much in line with McIntyre's idea of uh, narrative as virtue telling. I, I think it's just fascinating because the idea that life is preparing you to die well or philosophy is preparing you to die well is so utterly opposed to a modern view of life where death is the point beyond which you probably just don't get to have fun anymore. Um, yeah, so philosophy is trying to live well. Well said, actually. Uh, yeah, I think that might be the modern approach to philosophy is learning how to live well, not learning how to die. And that's Nietzsche's final, final point is, you know, live well, live like a hero. Like why? Why just why yeah, just be good? Go, why, yeah, why take be heroic. Take what you want. Take Troy. You know, steal Helen back. Get shipwrecked. End up on an island with uh, Cersei for twelve years while your poor wife fends off suitors. Uh, go home. Uh, shoot an arrow through twelve axe handles, um, and then kill all of the young men who came to woo your wife. Be a that hero. sounds that sounds much more fun than spending your entire life learning how to die. Which, I mean, it's funny because uh, so you said that's someone t- satire, but I mean, it does. And that is kind of the American zeitgeist, uh, the idea that we are here to anesthetize ourselves from realizing that we are going to die. I feel like there's some unpacking to do there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, and Brevin, you can edit this out if you want to. Yeah. Um, because I might go into Play-Doh. Actually, I'm going into Play-Doh. I'm, I have the Republic open right now. Uh, <laughs> it's moved from sitting on my desk to being open. But uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but his part about uh, literature, his entire reason for wanting to exclude literature is that it makes men feel more heroic than they are. You read Homer and you you see all these great heroes and everybody thinks I can be like that. And he says that that's unacceptable. That everybody needs to learn how to sit in their place and the populace needs to be educated in that way. Almost like he's making the exact opposite point about Homer that McIntyre makes. While, while Plato is saying Homer is going to teach them how to live out of order with society, McIntyre is saying that will teach them how to live in order with society, with, with society and live in line with how they are expected to live. Okay. Um, well, I, I think that, uh, once again, we've exhausted every single avenue of thought that one could talk about McIntyre Chapter 10. Um, agreed? There's zero more things to talk about? None. None. Um, so, that was great. Um, a good read. But sometimes we have other good reads, interestingly enough. Uh, Sam, did, did you yeah. read something good? I did read something interesting. Um, this morning, actually. In the uh, the Wall Street Journal Journal Opinion pages, you uh, which I, th- I know, I think this is where my last one came from too. And next week, I'll probably pull one from the uh, the Wall Street Journal Opinion pages again. Uh, but no, it's a book review. It's a book review of the book Empty Planet: The Shock of Global Population Decline by a Canadian sociologist Daryl Bricker and journalist John Ibbotson. So this is written by Layman Stone, who's um, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. I didn't know that until I got to the bottom of the article, um, because my rant is also from the American Enterprise Institute. But uh, anyway, basically the book asks the question, um, is population growth a problem? Uh, For the last several decades, we've been told that, yes, it's a huge problem. Um, Even Thanos told us that, yes, it's a big problem. But they actually say... um, They say otherwise. They say that, quote, the great defining event of the 21st century will occur in three decades, give or take, when the global population starts to decline. Once that decline begins, it will never end. The book takes a pretty pessimistic view of where we're at in the modern world. It looks at how governments have been fighting population growth for so long and so aggressively, and that we're seeing the backlash of that right now, where we actually worldwide don't have enough people being born to sustain economic growth. Uh, They go into a few different situations. So they look at Brazil and China, where women are opting for permanent sterilization during fertile years. Um, In China, about half of all couples opt for this, which is astounding. That's that's quite high. Um, In South Korea and Japan, most women are waiting until their 30s. And in the United States, obviously, overall, we're seeing fertility rates decline, but particularly among Hispanics we're seeing a collapse of fertility, which was quite unexpected. Uh, very few sociologists would have predicted that happening. The blame 
is on two things that I dislike. Uh, that's statistics and the United Nations, or more exactly, uh, faulty statistics from the United Nations Population Division. That's just a nexus of evil. I am so surprised that the sociologists didn't see this coming. I, I had no idea that they had Everyone some was issues. shocked. <laughs> McIntyre, the most shocked of all. <laughs> no, but these statistics are pretty bad. Um, it, from t- The UN said that basically in the United States from 2015 to 2020, we would see about 1.9 children per woman being born. The CDC showed the U.S. fertility averaged about 1.8 children per woman. So I guess it's one, one point down from 2015 to 2018. And in 2019, we're already looking at about 1.7. So that's, I guess, only 0.2 lower than the United Nations estimates, but compounded over millions Millions of people. Compounded over 150 yeah. million. Yeah, that's honestly that's, that's a devastating. Lot. Uh, given uh, so uh, two uh, two children um, uh, per couple, that's that's sustaining, and that's assuming no infant mortality, um, and that the uh, mother always survives uh, to give birth to the full amount of children. No, no, I think that's just their forecast. So they were just saying that this is what we're expecting in the United States, and so therefore you you know United States craft policy assuming that women are are. Um, that you're having 1.9 children per woman. Oh, uh, and I was saying, oh, sorry, uh, I should have been more clear. Um, oh. that, that significantly below 2.0 is quite, yes. like that is very significant. Oh, got it, um, yes. Yes, yeah, because the 2.0 is necessary. Um, those are all low. But overall, the UN's just been inaccurate. Their fertility estimates are about 5 to 10% off everywhere like even in the present when they're giving estimates of like what our fertility rates just are in different countries they're about five to ten percent off most other accurate statistics so most people agree that these statistics can't be used but they're what are guiding they're, they're being used to guide our policy and then you know they try to assess the causes of it and solutions solutions are extremely difficult to come by uh the article is basically concluded by um our reviewer, Mr. Stone, saying, um, you know, they don't really give a solution. They're just trying to start the conversation because there isn't much of a conversation about population decline. We're seeing tons about population growth, but nothing about decline. They do make this interesting point that gender equality might actually increase fertility, that women in developed countries like the United States are actually having fewer children than they desire to have. So most women, when polled, say they'd rather have two or three children when they're only having one or maybe two. Now, see, that's fascinating. That, yeah. Because oftentimes the narrative given is women are being forced to have children by their husbands. They're giving up careers for it and whatnot. Exactly. It's surprising to hear that it's actually the opposite way around. Yeah. I think there's a couple different ways that you could come at it. The question is how you define equality. What I think the authors are getting at is that you could hypothetically get higher birth rates if um, essentially you had really good maternity benefits so that mm-hmm. having children had no impact on your career. That's but that's how you would get two or three kids and also people having a, a career. The question is just whether or not that's a model that people will buy into. Yeah, and I kind of wish they went there. I'm not saying that's a policy I necessarily support. I mean, I think it's better than what we have right now, but their main solution is basically immigration, that we need more immigration. But then, even then, they say that immigration is not sustainable because in um, countries where immigrants are emigrating from, population is also declining. Uh, fertility is also declining. So eventually there will be, th- those countries will need people to stay to stay in the country for, um, for their economies to continue developing. So basically it's just a, a mess and there's no solution. I'm going to take the opposite approach and say actually all of our each other. Um, we have lower population, which means... Um, less uh, people to consume energy, and once countries get rich, their populations level out and go down, and their uh, their use of green energy gets better. So the richer mm-hmm. countries become, then they'll level out, uh, child rates will go down. At the same time, we'll have uh, climate change destroying uh, various countries which will force immigration into rich countries, at which point the birth rates will go down. And uh, the and the green energy use on those per capita basis will go up, and basically this just seems like a utopia um, with Uber and everything run by robots. So I don't actually see a problem here. See, that would be possible. that would be funny, except it's actually that's a legitimate policy that's advocated. Um, last weekend, when we took a break up from the podcast, I was down at a conference in Berkeley, and there was an environmental lawyer who spoke, and she was a 
pretty far left progressive sort of lawyer, but she was saying how environmental policies and their effect on minorities is the new civil rights issue of our time. That people are in specifically the Bay Area, the policies being implemented are so harmful for families and are tearing communities apart, trying to push people into, you know, 500 square foot, you know, apartments. And when people bring up the point of, hey, people can't have children, the response is, that's completely fine. Children are very costly. There is something quite awful about that. I'm glad we live in a culture of life and not a culture of death. That's cool. So there's a bit of optimism. Well, speaking of uh, optimism, there's one person who is very optimistic about her chances of returning to her country of the United Kingdom, despite running off to ISIS and marrying a soldier uh, when she was 15. And that person is uh, Shamima Begum. And my article for this week is uh, called ISIS Bride Should Be Judged for What She Did, Not Who She Is. Um, and it's talking about the instance of this um, young woman, um, Shamima Begum, who was uh, one of three teenage girls from London who flew to Turkey and then traveled across the border into Syria with the intention of joining ISIS. Uh, the girls had done their research, raised funds, and made travel arrangements all apparently without the knowledge of their parents, who then heard nothing more from their daughters after they entered Syria. And then just a few weeks ago, a reporter, uh, or or a magazine rather, published a article about how one of their reporters actually found this girl in a refugee camp in Syria who had fled ISIS and the caliphate as it collapsed, um, lost contact with her jihadi Dutch husband, and was nine months pregnant at the time and wanted to return to the UK having lost two previous children to disease and malnutrition. Notable facts about the case uh, is that she didn't have any remorse about her decision to join the terrorist group. There's an interview that's kind of creepy to watch where she talks about like seeing a head in a bucket and executions and such, and she's very sanguine about the whole affair, which uh, the article writer notes could be trauma or callousness. We have no idea. But the author argues that uh, she shouldn't be dismissed that she should that she deserves to be brought home um you know assessed by social services to see if she's fit to be a mother put on trial and then protected from uh threats from the public but also um given the full measure of justice and you know if she deserves the book it should be thrown at her let it be done Uh, but the child shouldn't be made to suffer for the mother what's interesting about this is just that it has sparked this huge conversation in the uk about what to do in situations like this and actually there's another case where with a girl from like Alabama or something um, similar situation that we're dealing with now. And it's just a question of, you know, she's a UK citizen, but she's also a Bangladeshi citizen. And there's some updates on that. But first, just like the best quote from the article was a quote, much of the reporting on Begum has represented her as an innocent, totally unaware of the gravity of what she has done. The assumption seems to be that because she's a young woman with dark skin, she couldn't have possibly set out to do harm. Well, women can and do commit terrible acts. So do people of color. All human beings are moral agents capable of both good and evil. As so often in leftist discourses, there is the whiff of the soft bigotry of low expectations. The right share the same tendency towards excusing wrongdoers when it's politically convenient to do so as well. Uh, end quote. And it lists some other examples of that too. But it just sort of represents yet another place where there's this depressing divide between right and left, you know, going from unjustified sympathy to utter hatred. And things like the story and like many other things that I'm reading just reminded me that people often don't really care about the story itself or the people in the stories. And that so much of the public discourse is just fighting over the details of stories, the characterization, so that they can add these stories to their ideological arsenals and buff it up their, you know, preconceived stuff, which is a fascinating thing to observe when you realize that's what's going on, but also really depressing. And and as one final note on this, so this this woman uh, and her family emigrated from Bangladesh, but she has UK citizenship. I, I believe she was born there, but she's also technically a Bangladeshi citizen. So the British Home Secretary, um, they found a loophole in international law because states can't um, make someone stateless. That's illegal. But because she also has Bangladeshi citizenship, presumably I'm pretty sure last time I checked, they revoked her UK citizenship because basically whoever got to revoking her citizenship first wouldn't have to deal with her. Um, and the UK beat Bangladesh to it. So anyway, that's exactly what the author did not want to happen. Um, but uh, not sure what's happening there. Anyway, interesting, interesting things. There is something, uh, you, you brought the idea of uh, people using this story as not not debating the story for the sake of the story itself, but rather to add to their own ideological arsenal. There is something very weird about that in that 
uh, much like McIntyre discussing how people become means to an end in a, in a bureaucratic setting, this is how stories become means to ends in a political setting that mm-hmm. we are no, now no longer concerned about what is just to do in this situation. We are con- uh, concerned with how does this situation fit um, the particular political narrative I want to tell. There's also interesting aspects um, to go to Walker Percy again. You know, I'm just going to make this my thing. I'm just going to bring up Walker Percy way too much, and you can bring up David Foster Wallace too much. Um, deal. So, deal. Who do I bring up way too much? Uh, Plato. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so, truth be told, Sam, you probably win in that case because you're bringing up Plato, who has endured the uh, you know last 2,500 years. Uh, we're bringing up people that died like 10 years ago. But you don't think we're going to be reading Walker Percy in 2,500 years? I I will let you know that. I'll, okay. I'll let you know in 2,500 years. Sounds good. The the discourse on on either side of this is fascinating, just in terms of underlying worldview. So on the one hand, you have the language of young girl brainwashed, young girl. Um, you know, tricked and manipulated and, you know, sort of tricked into it or, you know, things akin to people who are uh, kidnapped by, by human traffickers. Um, and that's very much sort of the the scientific organism language. Oh, it was in a bad environment. And if only we had adjusted the environment, then we could have, you know, it wouldn't have turned out this way, which is utterly opposed to what you might say the other extreme, which is, oh, no, this is purely ideological. This is or this is purely within the realm of uh, the new thoughts and ideas, um, and and it has nothing to do with perhaps uh, upbringing or uh, material circumstances. Um, and it's just always funny seeing how the different sides of, of the political debate choose one of those extremes depending on what story they're talking about. Uh, I I too uh, have an article. If we're if we're done with that uh, conversation, that is go for it. Um, so you the idea of uh, particular narratives fitting in particular. Um, political story or p- political arsenals uh, is somewhat related to, to mine. Uh, my coworker sent this article out to uh, the, the team. It's called The Secret History of Women in Coding. Uh, it's by Clive Thompson of the New York Times. Uh, came out uh, just this week. And I'm not a huge fan of the title because it, it somewhat has that clickbaity theme to it. But honestly, a very well done article uh, tells the compelling narrative about uh, the gender demographics in the realm of programming in this past century. It uh, starts off with the story of Mary Wilkes, who I'm, truth be told, quite partial to. Uh, she's a programmer that started out with a philosophy degree. So, you know, like uh, birds of a feather, as it were. Um, after graduation, she had originally planned on becoming a lawyer, um, very much wanted to go into law and you know practice. But she was, in essence, told over and over again, you're a woman. The most you're going to be able to do is like become a law secretary or a law secretary, maybe a librarian that works with lawyers. But that's maybe a research assistant, but that, that's the most you're going to be able to do. But she had a teacher who had encouraged her to look into programming. Um, and so after she graduated and was kind of told, hey, lawyering is just not going to happen, uh, she was employed at MIT as one of the very few programmers there. Um, she had no experience in the field whatsoever, uh, but she very quickly became proficient in the realm of assembly programming, which let me tell you, assembly, it the, the word computer language gets thrown out there a lot. Assembly really is another language. Like You have to be very, very good at that. Um, the article moves on from this story to, to discuss how during World War II, women were some of the first coders. Um, in fact, it was assumed that women were just kind of wired for it, that they were like genetically predisposed to programming. Uh, the first programmer in the world, Ada Lovelace, was a woman. Uh, most of the World War II programmers were women, as I mentioned. Uh, and it, it, kind of in reading this, I, I was quite surprised, uh, especially how we all know kind of the, the current stereotype of the, the nerdy uh, you know, the the white male programmer and looking around my office as I was reading this, it was certainly true. Most of my engineering coworkers are dudes. And the, the article goes on to propose an argument uh, that back in the day, hardware, not software, was considered the most glorious engineering feat. And to be fair, it was and still is a very, uh, you know, quite an awesome field. Uh, NIAC, one of the first computers developed, which was during World War II, uh, it was 30 tons and included over 1,700 or 17,000 vacuum tubes, uh, extraordinary feat of engineering. Uh, But on the contrast, programming was viewed as, uh, quote, menial, even secretarial, end quote. The theory proposed uh, is that this, uh, this was what led the male engineers to shuffle this labor off to their female colleagues. Quote, women had long been employed in the scut work of doing calculations. In the years leading up to the NIAC, many companies bought huge electronic tabulating machines, quite useful for tallying up payroll, say, uh, from companies like IBM, 
women frequently worked as punch card operators for these overgrown calculators. When the time came to hire technicians to write instructions for the ENIAC, it made sense uh, to the men in charge to pick an all-female team. Uh, uh, it goes on to say uh, the men would figure out what they uh, wanted ENIAC to do. Uh, the women programmed it to execute the instructions, end quote. Uh, one thing I want to underscore, this this work was certainly not menial at all. Uh, the programming of assembly, uh, of assembly requires some wicked clever engineering, uh, but nonetheless, this was how it was viewed. Uh, after World War II, the stereotype of the women programmer continued for some time. Women were specifically targeted, uh, targeted uh, even in quite offensive arguments such as uh, women's traditional expertise at painstaking activities like knitting and weaving manifest precisely this mindset, end quote. Uh, IBM had a brochure titled, quote, My Fair Ladies, end quote, encouraging women to apply for coding jobs. All this seemed to change in roughly 1984. That was kind of the, the fulcrum. Percentages of women in computer science and information and information science programs uh, dropped significantly. A decade earlier, studies had shown an equal interest in coding between the genders. Afterwards, this too began dropping significantly. The argument concludes that this is due primarily to the personal computer. Prior to this, anyone approaching a computer was at an equal playing field. No one had much experience. Uh, however, with the advent of personal computers, males tended to be given more opportunities to experience these earlier on, whether at home, where it was more than twice as likely to be a gift from parents uh, for sons rather than daughters, that is, uh, or in the classroom where the majority of computer clubs were male dominated. Uh, upon entering the college classroom, female students would be tormented with doubts as their more experienced male colleagues would express skepticism at their abilities uh, if they expressed any ignorance in any field, um, unlike the realm just 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, there was a sociologist, uh, which forgive her for being a sociologist, but um, uh, Jane Margulis, uh, uh, she studied this phenomenon and concluded that, quote, there was a sense in the classroom that if you hadn't already been coding obsessively for years, you didn't belong. The real programmer was one who had a computer screen tan from being in front of the monitor all the time. As the idea was, you just have to love being with a computer all the time. And if you don't do it 24-7, you're not a real programmer. End quote. Uh, this would extend even to professors uh, to cite a first-year comp sci student at John Hopkins, Patricia Ordonez. Uh, quote, I remember that one day he looked at me and said, you should already know this by now. Uh, I thought I ne I'm never going to succeed. And she switched majors as a result. End quote. And just as a side note, uh, I have a very dear friend who experienced a very similar feeling when she went to math grad school, uh, and she dropped out due to that, as well as other fairly negative social pre pressure that was related to her being female, just pretty explicitly, um, which is honestly quite a disheartening thing. Uh, culture solidified this uh, with Tron, weir Weird Science, and other movies that enforced the stereotype of the nerdy white, pro uh, white guy being the programmer. Uh, and so it goes, and now we have a field mainly dominated by men. Good job, guys. My, my interest in this article is twofold. Uh, first, it's honestly a very well done article uh, detailing a history that I really hadn't heard much of. I knew of Ada Lovelace and I knew of some of the ENIAC uh, programmers, but the fact that it was actually quite female dominated back in the day was honestly quite a shock. Um, and it offered a, a rather logical explanation on how it was that the majority of my programming teams have always been male dominated. Uh, second, it highlights issues with both liberal and conservative approaches to this issue. Uh, I saw several times some obviously cherry-picked statistics that were somewhat in tension with the narrative given. The, for example, the pre-1984 statistics given uh, were that men and women expressed equal interest in coding, but men still constituted nearly two-thirds of those graduating with said degrees. Uh, granted, a decade later, the setting increased to over four-fifths, but still, it's not like women absolutely, absolutely dominate the field at that time. That said, that's rather nitpicky. Um, my... My main issue is when this article gets to talking about contemporary issues. It cites James Damore, who was this Google employee who was rather publicly crucified after publishing this article to Google, uh, quote, Google's ideological echo chamber, end quote. You may have heard of this. This was back in 2017, I think, um, in which he discussed different ways to go about making engineering inviting for both men and women. He disagreed with Google's approach, suggesting that, that uh, there were actual differences between men and women. Uh, that was his suggestion, not Google's. Google's uh, generally insisted that there really aren't. Um, and uh, he said that, well, there are, so we should start providing for both to make it inclusive. Now, I, I would like to say that in his article, there were a few areas where I wish he had kind of rephrased stuff. But on the whole, it wasn't that crazy of an article. He was crucified in the public sphere. Accusations of sexism, desire to exclude were flung at him. 
Uh, and this article really isn't a huge exception to that rule. Um, and it cited him as one of the men insisting that differences mean women are unsuited, doing a very tricky play on words, saying, uh, quote, Google fired Demore, saying it could not employ someone who would argue that his female colleagues were inherently unsuited to the job, end quote, which, of course, he never said. So that's one area I have with the narrative of this particular article. But this article also highlights any an issue with the more conservative tendency to pretend that these sort of things don't happen or that the gender disparity is completely explained by genders just being wired differently. Clearly, there is a precedent of women being excellent programmers employed by prestigious companies and in mass, and in fact, even being the target demographic on in what was an explicitly male-dominated time. I mean, 40s and 50s, like the sexism was real. And so clearly there is a disjoint in the conservative narrative that, well, there aren't as many women programmers because women don't like programming. It's that simple. And talking with various coworkers and whatnot, uh, female coworkers and whatnot, like they they were pretty adamant, like, you know, this article is pretty spot on. Like there, there is some just explicit sexism how that goes on. So on the whole, while there are a few issues I take with the article, it's very well done. And a reminder that sexism is real. It sucks. And the sooner it goes away, the better. All right. Well, there you go. And I will say I, I expended my rant. That's going to include my rants uh, for, for the day. The, uh, the issues with narratives in both conservative and liberal ways of uh, taking stories, because it was an absurdly long, long article. <laughs> Too true. Uh, well, for, for my rant, um, it'll be short, um, but it's about uh, Fun Dip. That's right. Those uh, little packets of uh, colored flavored sugar with chalky sugar sticks that you dip into them. They are delicious. Uh, my my wife gave me um, one for Valentine's Day and then gave me another one for Valentine's Day and then one more. And, uh, and then she's like, hey, guess what? And then she turns out she had a whole box of them. So I've been snacking on those. Um, <laughs> but... There's a there's a real creepiness to Fun Dip, kind of like the Tim Burton Charles and the Chocolate Factory movie. Just sort of imagine as you hear these these phrases that are upcoming, sort of like a cult, like a grown man, like very grown man in a colorful suit with like a top hat, and then naming these candies while like rubbing tightly purple gloved hands together. All right, so these are some things that you'll find on the packaging of Fun Dip. Um, the name of the company or something is uh, Lickamade. L-I-K-M-Aid. Lickamade. Now imagine the, the man rubbing his gloves. All right, oh. Next, oh. next one. Now now the name of the flavors. Um, the first is Raz Apple Magic Dip. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and now the worst one. And imagine the man rubbing his gloves again. Cherry Yum Diddly Dip. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and that's my yeah, I, I don't think I've had fun dip since I could really read proficiently. So... I know, I right? Never... <laughs> you just never noticed. I've never... Terrible. I can't unknow now. Thanks for that. <laughs> All right, Sam, how about you? What makes you angry? Well, I'm going to close this off with another bit of possibly depression. But, um... It's, in, it's a rant that comes from an editorial article um, that Arthur Brooks, soon to be former president of the American Enterprise Institute, published in the Washington Post. Um, that the United, It's called uh, The U.S. is in a Crisis of Love. And it's about how in the United States there's no, like, millennials and, like, our generation don't know how to love and find love. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for this. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's the contemptuous uh, political conflict. But his main concept is, or his main point is fear. That fear is holding young people back from actually taking the risk of love. And he even puts it to the entrepreneurial risk of love. So, you know, entrepreneurship might be might be bad. It might be the epitomization of the modern American dream. But if you don't have it, you might not have love. Basically, we're all around falling apart. I mean, we're in a modern time. We're not having kids. We're not falling in love. Um, sexism is clearly just as alive as it used to be. Nietzsche might be a good solution. I have no idea. Anyway. Or arranged marriages. Or arranged marriages. That could I don't do know. it. Well, I mean, Brevin, how'd that work out in your article? <laughs> hey. Not well. Uh, well, no. <laughs> That's mean. Um, no, no. If she would have had an arranged marriage, actually, she wouldn't have gone and you know joined ISIS. Actually, so um, okay. Yeah. Guess the eggs on your face now. Um, anyway, maybe. 
So I don't know. I apologize to our our couple dozen listeners for uh, this episode. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're feeling much happier. <laughs> we always end on a depressing note. <laughs> I know. It's always Sam. It's always Sam's fault. I just like, hey, let's talk about fun dip, and then Sam's like, yeah, love is impossible. <laughs> yeah, our society has programmed us to be unable to love. Programmed us. Yep. Jeez. Oh, yep. yep, we're all programmed. Okay. Well, on uh, on get out of here. that note, <laughs> uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. And I'm Sam. And we will see you next time. Next week, everyone. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Enlightenment. All right, uh, guys, pause it just for a second. Can you hear the, the like a fan noise in the background of me by any chance? No. I hear the abyss. <laughs>